This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Dr. Craig, it's an honor to me to speak with you today. Uh, you have um, so many impacts to my life. Uh, I, I became a Christian after watching your debate with Christopher Hitchens, and it's uh, just oh. so amazing. Thank you so that much for, for your ministry. Доктор Крейг, для тех зрителей, которые с вами не знакомы, пожалуйста, расскажите немножко о себе. Кто вы, чем занимаетесь, каковы основные области ваших научных интересов, какие из своих опубликованных работ вы считаете наиболее значимыми? Well, I am currently a professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and at Houston Baptist University. I'm a Christian philosopher and theologian by trade. I'm also the founder and president of a web-based ministry called Reasonable Faith, which seeks to provide an intelligent and articulate voice in the public square in defense of a Christian worldview. And what I do in pursuit of that goal is to produce uh, both scholarly materials Uh, as well as popular level materials for the man in the street. My main areas of research are in philosophy of religion, also in philosophy of time and space, uh, philosophy of mathematics and metaphysics. And I suppose I should mention as well my work in theology, um, I have published extensively uh, on topics like the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, and most recently on the uh, doctrine of the atonement. And uh, I regard this work on the atonement as perhaps the most important work that I've done theologically. Тогда следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, бывали ли вы в России или на Украине, и что вам особенно запомнилось в этих поездках? Как вы оцениваете вклад русских авторов в апологетику? All right. I have not had the privilege of visiting the Ukraine, but I have made several trips to the old Soviet Union and to Russia in more recent years. And uh, although uh, there are so many vivid memories of those trips, perhaps one of the most memorable experiences was my visit to the Banya in Moscow, uh, which was something that was just out of this world. It was so much fun, so refreshing. When we came out of that uh, Banya into the afternoon air, I felt as though every pore in my body was just breathing and refreshed. It was an incredible experience and, and something that you'd never have in the United States where I live. Now, in terms of my assessment of the contribution of Russian authors to apologetics, I am not familiar, frankly, with contemporary um, Russian apologists. But I think that Dostoevsky's contribution is unparalleled, and he is, in fact, my favorite author. Um, I think that he so masterfully um, illustrates the hopelessness and the despair of a world without God, shows the unlivability of atheism, 
and I think provides a powerful answer to the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, есть ли смысл пытаться что-то доказать, если факты и аргументы обычно людей не убеждают? It's very important to understand that the purpose of Christian apologetics goes far beyond uh, evangelism. Apologetics can also serve to strengthen the believer's faith, and therefore it has a vital ministry in the church in training Christians um, in the uh, rational defense of their faith. Even if the unbeliever isn't convinced, this can be of great value in strengthening Christian believers. Moreover, apologetics serves the broader purpose of helping to create a cultural milieu in which the gospel can still be heard as an intellectually viable option for thinking men and women. In the Ukraine and in Russia, you have gone through the experience of decades of Marxist indoctrination in the universities and schools. And this has helped to shape the cultural milieu in which you were raised and live. And we were told that although students are skeptical of the positive uh, Marxist worldview, nevertheless, they were very receptive of the negative critique of Christian theism that was offered by Marxism. So that atheism has become um, very widespread in um, Russian uh, culture and the cultures that were formerly dominated by the Soviet Union. And these cultural considerations are absolutely vital to the reception of the gospel. A person who is raised in a culture in which the Christian worldview is still an intellectually viable option, will be open to the gospel in the way that a person who has been thoroughly secularized will not. And so part of our goal as Christian apologists is to help to create and sustain a cultural milieu in which the gospel can still be heard as a viable option for thinking people. But now to return to the issue of evangelism, I find that many people are open to uh, Christian apologetics, and many people become Christians through hearing a rational defense of the existence of God and the evidence for Jesus. And even with a person who is completely resistant at least by sharing the arguments with him, you have given him an opportunity to respond and you've removed any excuse that he might have for his failure to respond, thereby exposing the real issue, which is the condition of his heart and not intellectual obstacles. Следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, наверное, вы видите, как за последние сто лет изменилось отношение ведущих физиков к основным вопросам философии и религии. Как бы вы подытожили эти изменения и в чем, по-вашему, причина этих изменений? Um, there has been a, a, a revolution in astrophysical cosmology since the year 1900. 
up until that time, the assumption had been for centuries, even millennia, really, that the universe is eternal and unchanging. And that worldview was shattered by Albert Einstein's discoveries of the special and general theories of relativity. The Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman applied the equations of general relativity to the universe and found, to his astonishment, that it predicted a universe which is expanding and therefore cannot be eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning a finite time ago. And astronomical observations during the 1920s confirmed Friedman's predictions so that the standard model of the origin of the universe became the so-called Big Bang Theory, which says that the universe came into being uh, a finite time ago and is in a state of cosmic expansion. Moreover, scientists have been stunned to discover that the initial conditions of the universe given in the Big Bang were not chaotic, but instead were fine-tuned to an incomprehensible complexity and delicacy to permit the evolution and existence of intelligent life somewhere in the cosmos. And as a result of these discoveries, contemporary physics is more open to the existence of a transcendent creator and designer of the universe than at any time in recent memory. Следующий вопрос довольно длинный, но попробуем его озвучить полностью. Доктор Крейг, отстаивая некоторые предпосылки доказательств существования Бога, вы иногда апеллируете к интуиции. Например, как вы пишете в книге «Новое естественное богословие», истинность суждения о том, что ничто не возникает из ничего, интуитивно очевидна. Как вы пишете в другой своей книге «On Guard», Суждение о том, что существование Вселенной необходимо, то есть она не может не существовать, или что ее тонкая настройка необходима, то есть она не может не быть тонко настроенной, не кажется вам правдоподобным. Мне кажется, что о правдоподобии этого суждения вы тоже судите интуитивно, но интуиция нас нередко подводит. Почему же вы считаете интуицию достаточным доказательством принципа причинности, а также контингентности Вселенной и ее тонкой настройки? И если можно, вначале изложите суть идеи, о которых идет речь just your emotional feelings. For example, when we talk about, say, women's intuition um, about something. Rather, they are talking about what's called rational intuition. And at root, this is basically saying that when you think about certain things logically and rationally, they just seem true. So, for example, take the basic rules of logic like P implies Q, P, therefore Q. That just seems right. You can't prove the rules of logic because you would have to use the rules of logic to prove them. And so you simply um, look at them and rationally speaking, they seem undeniable. 
And I think there are certain metaphysical principles that are like that as well. When I appeal to the causal principle that whatever begins to exist has a cause, I say that that is rooted in the metaphysical intuition that something cannot come into being from nothing. It seems to me that anyone who correctly understands the concept of nothing, that is to say, not anything, non-being, can see that something cannot arise out of non-being. Being only arises from being. There needs to be something that brings the thing into existence, but something can't just come into being from nothing. I think that Anybody who denies that hasn't really understood the concept of nothing. He's thinking that nothing is something like empty space or the vacuum or some other existing state of affairs rather than the absence of anything whatsoever. Or take the uh, metaphysical intuition that some things exist contingently. If you came upon some physical object in the woods that you had never seen before, I think you would recognize that this thing exists contingently, not necessarily. To my mind, it would be utterly fantastic to say that that thing in the, in the woods that you encounter, whether a rock or a tree or a ball, is something that exists necessarily. Rather, you would think there's an explanation for why it exists. And if that object was the size of a house, that wouldn't make any difference. You would still think that it needs some explanation. If it were the size of a planet, that would do nothing to remove the need for or provide an explanation of its existence. If it were the size of the galaxy, the same thing. And if it were the size of the entire universe, the same problem would apply. Merely increasing the size of the object does nothing to remove the need for or provide an explanation of its existence. And so I think that we have a rational intuition of the contingency of the universe and can therefore ask, what is the explanation for why the universe exists? So those would be just a couple of examples of rational intuition at work. And these sorts of rational intuitions really underlie all of philosophy. Um, if you're not to have an infinite regress, you have to reach bedrock at some point where you simply uh, can see rationally that certain principles are true and require no further justification or proof. Следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, в своих работах вы утверждаете, будто евреи не верили, что люди могут телесно воскреснуть прежде конца света. Однако библеист Барт Эрман в своей книге «Как Иисус стал Богом» утверждает обратное. Он пишет, по сообщениям Нового Завета, Ирод Антипа верил, будто Иисус в действительности никто иной, как Иоанн Креститель, который восстал из мертвых. Так что в подобных верованиях не было ничего невероятного. Более того, в дохристианских еврейских кругах существовало верование, будто император Нерон восстанет из мертвых, чтобы произвести еще большую смуту на земле. Что бы вы ответили на это? И вначале, если можно, кратко поясните, о чем идет речь 
is not just the revivification of a corpse. Rather, resurrection in the Jewish sense of the word is the transformation of the body to an immortal, glorious existence that will be fit for eternity. When Jesus, for example, um, raised Lazarus from the dead, that was not a resurrection. Rather, in Jewish thinking, that was simply a revivification, a return to the mortal life with all its shortcomings and um, uh, weaknesses, and eventually Lazarus would die again. This was not a resurrection in the Jewish sense of the word. So when you look at Jewish literature um, from the time prior to and contemporaneous with Jesus, you find that the idea of a resurrection, and I mean in the true Jewish sense, a resurrection to glory and immortality is never a resurrection within history prior to the end of the world and the judgment day, and never of an isolated individual. It is always a corporate event that takes place after the end of the world, without exception. In the case of this um, notice about Herod and Jesus, this would be at the very most a revivification of John the Baptist, not the resurrection of John the Baptist. And a moment's reflection reveals that it is not even the revivification of John the Baptist that Herod was talking about. Why? Because John and Jesus were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. And therefore, Jesus could not possibly be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Rather, what Herod meant was that the power and authority of John the Baptist was now on Jesus of Nazareth, that in a sense, the mantle of John the Baptist had been passed on to Jesus in the same way that in the Old Testament, the mantle of Elijah was passed on to Elisha. And so this is purely a metaphorical sense in which Herod is saying that this is John uh, risen from the dead. Uh, this is not a literal sense of that term. Следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, эссе «Генезис пифагорейской вселенной» Алексея Ильвабурова несколько лет назад получила награду Института основополагающих проблем. Авторы подчеркивают особый характер физических законов. Они достаточно сложны, чтобы быть антропными, и при этом достаточно элегантны, чтобы быть открываемыми. Далее авторы демонстрируют, что теистическое объяснение этих особенностей физических законов единственно возможное. Согласны ли вы с тем, что любые нетеистические объяснения особенностей физических законов несостоятельны? Если да, то как бы вы это показали? И, кстати, у нас сегодня среди зрителей есть зритель по имени Алексей Буров. Уж не знаю, тот ли о таком идет речь, но тем не менее. Is the amazing fine tuning of the Big Bang for intelligent life? It turns out that, contrary to expectation, the fundamental constants and quantities uh, in the laws of nature are fine tuned to a precision that is 
literally incomprehensible in order for the universe to be life permitting. If you were to alter the values of any one of these constants or quantities by less than a hair's breadth, the universe would be life prohibiting and life would not exist anywhere in the universe. So it is vastly incomprehensibly more probable that a life prohibiting universe should exist than a life permitting universe like this one. And so the question naturally arises, what is the best explanation for this remarkable fine tuning of the universe? Well, in the literature, there are basically three live options, physical necessity, chance, or design. And I would argue that both physical necessity and chance face very considerable objections and therefore are not the best explanation of the fine tuning. So I think a very good case can be made that the best explanation of the fine tuning of the universe is the existence of a transcendent, intelligent designer who has designed the universe to be life permitting. Even more fundamentally, however, the applicability of mathematics to the physical world cries out for explanation. The Hungarian-born, Nobel Prize-winning physicist and mathematician Eugene Wigner uh, published an article in 1960 entitled The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Physical Sciences. And Wigner argued that the applicability of mathematics in the physical world is so exact, so accurate, and so surprising uh, that it's inexplicable on a naturalistic worldview. Wigner said that the effectiveness of mathematics in the physical world is a miracle, which we neither understand nor deserve. And I think Wigner spoke uh, better than he knew. I, I think that the best explanation of the applicability of mathematics is that the physical world is built upon the design plan of a cosmic architect, namely God, so that the applicability of mathematics is quite literally a miracle. It is the result of divine design. So both the fine-tuning of the universe and the applicability of mathematics to the physical universe, I think, uh, constitute powerful evidence for the existence of a transcendent creator and designer of the cosmos. Следующий вопрос довольно большой и состоит из двух частей. Попробуем его более-менее кратко сформулировать. Доктор Крейг в своем недавнем подкасте «Мохаммед Хиджаб» взял интервью у Хамзы Дзартиза, того самого, который участвовал в дебатах с Лоуренсом Краусом. В этой беседе они обсудили некоторые ваши аргументы. Как бы вы ответили на их критику? И вот два конкретных положения, на которые читатель, наш зритель, просит ответить доктора Крейга. Первый момент. Христианский бог – это не величайшее возможное существо, ведь мусульманский Аллах может простить грех без искупления, а христианский бог – нет. Получается, что 
человеческий грех ограничивает милость Бога. Ну, если можно, вначале, пожалуйста, кратко объясните, в чем суть проблемы. И второй момент, на который э, наш зритель просит доктора Крейга ответить. Вы проводите аналогию между троицей и трехглавым псом. Но у каждой главы пса есть своя воля, собственные мысли, и э, эти мысли могут противоречить э, друг другу, головы могут противоречить друг другу. У абсолютного же существа должна быть только одна воля, иначе оно не будет абсолютным. И может ли одна голова пса стать котом, оставаясь при этом собакой? Вначале объясните, пожалуйста, суть вашей аналогии. Well, let's take part A of this question first which concerns um, God's being all-forgiving. Human sin does not pose any sort of limit on God's ability to forgive. On the Christian view, God can forgive any sin that we commit. There is no sin so heinous that it is beyond God's pardon. But most Christians want to affirm that God is just as just as he is loving, and therefore he cannot simply blink at sin without the just desert of sin being paid. So what God must do is find a way to be merciful to sinners, which does not compromise his holiness and his justice, which is just as essential to him as his love. And the Bible says that that is what God has done through Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity has entered human history as a human being, and he paid the penalty for our sin that we deserved so that God can forgive us of our sins without any compromise of God's justice. So the demands of God's love and justice are both met at the cross, at the cross The holiness and the mercy of God kiss, and neither is compromised. By contrast, on the Muslim view, in order to forgive our sins, God must compromise his justice. The just desert of sin is not met on the Muslim view. And therefore, Allah is not perfectly just. Now, the ironic thing about this is that the Muslim agrees with that. For the Muslim, God's omnipotence trumps everything, even his own nature, so that God can act even contrary to his own nature because of his omnipotence. So, on the Muslim view, the Muslim admits that on the judgment day, God could suddenly change his mind and say, you know, I'm going to send all faithful Muslims to hell forever, and I'm going to save the Jews instead. And that would be perfectly within his power, because he has no essence that constrains the raw and arbitrary exercise of his power. And I think that is uh, an abominable view of God, because on that view, God is not essentially good. He is an arbitrary and capricious tyrant. Now let's turn to part B of the question concerning the Trinity. I've tried to find some sort of springboard, some sort of illustration 
that might help us to understand how God could be three persons in one being. And in ancient Greek mythology, there is a dog named Kerberos who is guarding the gates of Hades that Hercules must uh, conquer as part of his tasks. And Kerberos would seem to be one being that has three centers of consciousness. And we can enhance the story a bit by imagining that Kerberos uh, has three self-conscious centers of consciousness, and so would be three persons in one being. Now, this analogy is not fully adequate, because if Kerberos were to die, his three self-conscious centers of awareness would seem to be no longer one being, but three separate beings. But suppose we imagine that there is a single soul is totally adapted with faculties. He has three centers of consciousness. The same way you have one of the faculties sufficient for self-consciousness, free the will, and intentionality. So this would soul would have three complete several faculties, each fitting for So we were talking about um, God being a tripersonal soul. Итак, мы говорим о том, что Бог является трехличностной душой. Now, the um, person you referred to raised some objections to this. Now, the first objection that he raises is that an absolute being must have only one will, otherwise he would not be absolute. And I see absolutely no argument for thinking that that's the case. Um, a tripersonal soul can exist necessarily, can be self-existent, can be the creator of everything else that exists. I see absolutely no reason to think that a tripersonal being uh, cannot exist and have three centers of self-consciousness and will. Uh, moreover, he objects that these wills might contradict one another. But again, I see no reason to think that. In a being who is perfect and who has all knowledge and is omniscient, there's no reason whatsoever to think that these three beings would disagree or these three centers of self-consciousness or persons would disagree with one another. So again, there's no argument for thinking that a tripersonal being would experience uh, a contradiction of wills. And then finally, he reverts to the Kerberos analogy again and says, well, could a dog's heads uh, become a cat and at the same time remain a dog? Well, obviously not, um, because um, a dog has a certain essence uh, that is different from that of a cat's and therefore uh, could not become a cat. Now, I wondered why he asked that question. It seemed so silly to ask whether a dog could become a cat. And then it just hit me now as I think about it. 
He's trying to object to the doctrine of the incarnation. He thinks that the Christian view is that one of the persons of the Trinity turned himself into a human being, which would be just as impossible as a dog turning into a cat. And that merely exposes his lack of understanding of Christian doctrine. The doctrine of the incarnation is not that God somehow turned himself into a human being. Rather, it is that the second person of the Trinity took on, in addition to his divine nature, a human nature. So the uh, doctrine of the incarnation is a matter of addition, not subtraction. The divine second person of the Trinity assumes a human nature in addition to the divine nature that he already had. So, uh, in summary, I'm not very impressed with either of these objections. Хорошо, тогда двигаемся дальше, и замечательно, что с сигналом у нас вроде бы все наладилось. А, доктор Крейг, является ли кажущаяся противоречивость и сложность учения о Троице достаточным основанием для того, чтобы отвергнуть это учение как ложно? That complex. The doctrine of the Trinity does not state that three persons are one person or that one God is three gods. Rather, it states that one God is three persons, and that's not even apparently contradictory. So if we think of God, as I suggest, as a tri-personal soul, that is to say a soul endowed with three sets of rational faculties, each sufficient for personhood. I don't see anything about that that is particularly difficult or uh, complex. It seems to me to be uh, a perspicuous doctrine. Moreover, I think there's a good plausibility argument on behalf of the view that God is not just a single person, as Muslims believe. Um, God, by definition, is the greatest conceivable being. And as the greatest conceivable being, God must be all-loving. Any being that was not all-loving could not be the greatest conceivable being. But it is an inherent property of love that it gives itself away. One gives oneself to the beloved in a love relationship. And Since creatures are not essential to God, uh, whom is it that God gives himself to in love? On the Muslim view, there is no one to whom God gives himself away in love because God is just a single self all wrapped up in himself with no one uh, to give himself away to in love. By contrast, on the Christian view, God is not a single person. He is tri-personal, and there is an eternal love relationship that exists between the three persons of the Trinity. This is a, an especially strong doctrine in the Orthodox Church, which emphasizes perichoresis, which is the complete interchange of love, knowledge, and will between the three persons of 
the Godhead. What the Father loves, the Son and the Spirit love. What the Son knows, the Father and the Spirit know. What the Spirit wills, the Father and the Son will. There is complete transparency of knowledge, love, and will between the three persons of the Trinity. And so this is a much more adequate concept of God uh, as an all-loving being who can give himself away to others within the Godhead itself. Доктор Крейг, философ Алвин Плантинга, обосновал теорию должного функционирования, согласно которой процессы, формирующие наши убеждения, способны открывать истину, если они функционируют правильно. Откуда мы знаем, что процесс, формирующий наши моральные убеждения и процесс, убеждающий нас в правильности христианства, то есть сенсус дивинитатис, функционирует правильно и открывают нам истину? Если эти процессы открывают людям истину, почему же тогда существует моральный и религиозный плюрализм? Можно ли оспорить существование такого плюрализма на том основании, что мораль и опыт восприятия Бога в разных религиях похожи? I think it's important that we not misunderstand the purpose of Plantinga's epistemological model. I think that the question misunderstands Plantinga's project. Planting is not trying to prove that the cognitive processes by which we arrive at our moral and spiritual beliefs are true or reliable. Rather, he's trying to provide a model which, if true, will show how our um, Christian beliefs are warranted and known to be true. So his project is a conditional one. If Christianity is true, this is how belief in Christian things can be warranted. And so what he proposes is that God has created us with a certain cognitive mechanism that automatically forms the belief in God in the proper circumstances, and moreover, that the Holy Spirit witnesses to the truth of the great things of the gospel, which we read about in Scripture. And so on the basis of this cognitive mechanism and the witness of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can know that these things are true. Now, This is certainly consistent with religious pluralism and disagreement because it's no part of his claim that these um, mechanisms are irresistible or indubitable. People can suppress their innate God consciousness. They can resist the witness of the Holy Spirit. And Plantinga would say that these are part of what he calls the noetic effects of sin. Sin has an effect upon our uh, proper functioning of our intellects. Uh, for Plantinga, um, unbelief is a dysfunction in the functioning of one's cognitive mechanisms. So I hope you can see that Plantinga's epistemology is fully consistent with religious pluralism and disagreement. Uh, it's not consistent with saying that all roads lead to God or that there is no objective truth. But it is to say that these cognitive mechanisms um, don't force themselves upon us and they can be suppressed or resisted. 
Следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг Джеймс Пакер пишет, армянство естественно в том смысле, что оно представляет собой характерное извращение библейского учения падшим разумом человека, который даже в отношении спасения не может отказаться от заблуждения о том, что он хозяин своей судьбы и властитель своей души. Как малинизм решает проблему суверенности Бога и свободы воли человека, и чем он предпочтительнее кальвинизма? Если можно, вначале объясните, что такое малинизм. J.I. Packer, who just recently passed away, was one of my theology teachers. And I remember one day he remarked in class that wherever superficial thinking reigns, there you find Arminianism. Well, I respectfully disagree with my um, esteemed professor in this regard. The scriptures have a very strong sense of human responsibility for sin and for resisting God, which I think requires genuine libertarian free will on the part of human beings. The only reason that all people are not saved lies not in God, but rather it lies in human beings. People freely resist God's will and his every effort to save them, and so irrevocably separate themselves from God forever. Their loss is not to be blamed upon God. They are responsible for their own fate because of their free choices. So if the scriptures affirm both divine sovereignty and human freedom, the question we face as theologians is how do you best put these together? How can both of these be affirmed? And on this score, I think that Molinism gives the best model for affirming both divine sovereignty and human freedom. This is a theory that was developed by a 16th century Jesuit theologian named Luis Molina. And what Molina held was that There are three moments in God's knowledge. First would be his natural knowledge. This would be his knowledge of all necessary truths, including all the possible worlds that he could create. The next moment is God's middle knowledge, and it's called middle knowledge simply because it's in between the other two. And middle knowledge gives God knowledge of what any creature would freely do in any circumstances that God might place him in. And this will give God knowledge of all of the worlds that are feasible for him to create, given how creatures would freely choose uh, in any circumstances. Then on the basis of his sovereign choice, God picks one of these feasible worlds to be actual And then in the third moment, God's free knowledge, God has knowledge of the actual world, including past, present, and future. So on this model, you're able to affirm a very, very strong doctrine of divine sovereignty. God is in control of the world, and yet it also allows you to affirm libertarian freedom of the will. Uh, and so I would commend to your viewers Um, this Molinist 
doctrine, uh, which is really experiencing a revival of interest in our day and age. Следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, что вы думаете о консеквенциалистской этике, в соответствии с которой правильность поступков определяется их последствиями? Как вы считаете, не является ли консеквенциалистским традиционное решение проблема зла, в соответствии с которым у Бога есть причина допустить это зло? Если говорить о людях, разве мы не обязаны воспрепятствовать злодеянию, когда у нас есть такая возможность? И вначале, пожалуйста, кратко изложите ваше решение проблемы зла. It is important to understand what consequentialism in ethics holds. According to consequentialism, if the end result is good, then the action itself is good. In other words, the end justifies the means. And consequentialism is widely rejected today because it seems evident that there are some things that are really wrong, even if it should turn out that they have good consequences. But it's important to understand that even on a non-consequentialist view of ethics, ethicists still take into account the consequences of their actions in determining what one should do. So, for example, uh, suppose you believe that it is your moral duty to love your neighbor as yourself. And suppose um, you're in a situation where there has been a terrorist attack, and you are one of the first responders to that terrorist attack, one of the things that you're going to have to do is to do triage on the wounded, on the victims, to decide which of them has the best chance of survival. And it will be those that you will attend to first, rather than people who are lying there, bleeding out and suffering terribly, you will actually pass by some of those victims who are suffering horribly in order to save those victims who have a better chance of survival if you attend to them. That is not consequentialism. You are determining how to best love your neighbor as yourself by looking at the consequences. So weighing the consequences does not um, commit you to consequentialism in ethics. Um, everyone will consider the consequences of one's actions in determining one's moral duties. Now, the question asks, but don't we have a moral duty to prevent any atrocities that we observe if we have the opportunity to do so? And I would say that normally we do, but it's easy to think of cases in which um, we uh, cannot carry out such a duty. And these are typically uh, stories about uh, moral conflict. For example, suppose you see a terrorist who is about to shoot uh, a single person and you could stop him by shooting the terrorist. But suppose, on the other hand, you see a group of terrorists who are about to murder an entire classroom of little children and their teachers. But you could stop him, but you couldn't stop both. You've got to choose which of the atrocities to prevent. And in that case, you're going to, I think, choose to prevent the worst 
atrocity. You will prevent the uh, murder of all of those little children and the teacher in the classroom rather than of the uh, isolated person. This is not consequentialism. What it is saying is that in determining my moral duty to prevent atrocities, I do weigh the consequences uh, and then will judge my moral duty accordingly. Тогда следующий вопрос. Доктор Крейг, мы видим, что источником морали не может быть что-то одно, не биологическая целесообразность, не общественный договор, не экономическая необходимость. Но что, если все эти факторы в совокупности являются объективным источником морали, объясняют существование таких нравственных ценностей, как святость жизни, самопожертвование и неприкосновенность имущества? Вначале, если можно, кратко изложите вашу точку зрения of objective moral values and duties. Um, it's very easy to imagine circumstances in which biological expediency, social agreement, and economic necessities would be different than they are, in which case we would have a different set of moral values and duties. Um, Darwin understood that if you rewound the film of human evolution back to the beginning, and let the process over again, a very different creature with a very different set of moral values might have evolved. And who are we to say that our values are right and his would be wrong? It seems to me that these kind of factors do not provide any sort of objectivity for moral values and duties. Now, admittedly, they do give an illusion of moral objectivity, Because on this view, moral values are not just subjectively made up. It's not as though every individual just invents his own set of moral values. Rather, they, they are imposed upon us by biological evolution, social conditioning, and economic necessities. Nevertheless, as I explained, uh, you can alter those factors and morality would be completely different or very different, uh, and therefore these are not a source of true objectivity. So it seems to me that what we need is a transcendent anchor point for moral values and duties, something that is uh, beyond the shifting sands of human culture, society, and biology, a transcendent source of moral values and duties. And these, the Christian theist provides um, in God. God, by his very nature, embodies the moral good, and his commands to us then constitute our moral duties. And so the Christian has an objective source of moral values and duties, which naturalism simply cannot provide. Uh, Dr. Craig, uh, uh, have you some so uh, thoughts about uh, uh, or recommendation to us, to Russian uh, listeners? Well, if you're looking <laughs> for advice, uh, I think probably the, the most important academic advice I could give would be to master the English language. And I do not say this out of any sense of chauvinism. Rather, it is simply a reflection of the fact that there are 
unparalleled resources available in the English language that simply haven't been translated yet into Russian or many European languages. So I have given this same advance, uh, advice to uh, European Christians uh, in Germany, uh, in France. The uh, resources in English are just indescribable. Over the last half century, there has been a revolution in Anglo-American philosophy, um, whereby the Christian world and life view has become a serious, respected alternative to atheism and naturalism. And the resources available through Christian philosophers uh, are just astonishing, as well in the field of theology and biblical studies. There are just tremendous resources available in English and also increasingly in the physical sciences. So I think that if a person wants to do serious apologetics, um, he really, really needs to master the English language so that he can take advantage of this sort of literature that is available. A second piece of advice I would give is to master the basic rules of logic. I think it's extremely important that uh, Christian academics um, understand the logical rules of inference. And there are only about nine of these that govern all rational thought. And the advantage of having these rules of logic in your toolkit is that it will enable you to formulate logically valid arguments in defense of your view, and then also to spot fallacies in the objections and arguments that are raised by secularists against the Christian worldview. So having um, a, a grasp of the basic rules of logic is really indispensable, I think, to Christian apologetics. I'd also recommend, thirdly, that Christians uh, study some philosophy as a preparation for their ministry. Um, philosophy is the most fundamental discipline because it undergirds every other discipline at the university. Uh, there is a philosophy of physics, for example, philosophy of history, um, philosophy of science, uh, philosophy of education. Um, every discipline has a philosophical component that undergirds it, that needs to be explored. And philosophy, in turn, explores its own foundations. Philosophy is involved in self-examination. So really having some sort of philosophical training will be very valuable for you, even if you don't go into the field of philosophy. If you're a New Testament theologian, or a systematic theologian, or a church historian, or any other field, you will be much more effective if you have some basic philosophical understanding. Um, now, all of these are um, concerned academic preparation. But of course, your personal and spiritual preparation will be even more important. If you simply become uh, an intellectual egghead who does not exemplify the character of Christ, then all of your accomplishments will be as wood, hay, and stubble. 
it's very important that each of us be very mindful of his personal spiritual formation. And therefore, we need to be involved in regular devotional Bible reading and prayer and corporate worship and evangelism uh, so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. We need to avoid sin in our lives and confess it when it does appear so that we'll be clean vessels that God can use. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're truly to be used in the way that God wants to use us. So it's vitally important not just to involve academic preparation, but this personal spiritual preparation as well. Dr. Craig, thank you so much for your ministry. It's uh, really important for us. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. And I stand shoulder to shoulder with my brothers and sisters, both in the Ukraine and in Russia, in contending for the faith. May God greatly use you. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.